0: Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Father Michael Dodds, O.P., Professor of Philosophy and Theology at the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology, giving a talk entitled Galileo, Darwin, and the War Between Science and Religion Some Catholic Rules of Engagement. Father Dodd's talk was part of the Distinguished Speakers Series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Well, thank you very much, Professor, and th- thank you to the university community also for inviting me to come and, and uh, give this talk. It's the first time to be in Steubenville or Steubenville University, so I'm very pleased to be able to, uh, to meet so many people that I've met during my time here. Uh, You probably have seen that there's a handout that's been going around. I always like to do that just so that no one uh, enters into a state of despair, thinking that this talk is going to go on forever. As we go through the evening, you can follow the points and see we really are getting towards an end eventually here. The title of this talk suggests that on entering the dialogue between science and religion, We step onto a kind of battlefield. In this country, the trenches were dug in the late 19th century with the publication of two books, The History of the Conflict Between Science and Religion by John William Draper and A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom by Andrew Dixon White. Those war stories remain readily available today since both books are still in print. In fact, if you're interested, you can get them free from Amazon Kindle. And of course, they've been joined by a host of others. Though recent scholarship has questioned this warfare image, the model at least reminds us that science and theology have regularly been engaged with each other. If theology is faith seeking understanding, then all modes of human knowing are relevant to its work. Ever since St. Paul invoked the Greek philosophers and poets at Athens, theology has mined the treasures of human reason. And at least since Tertullian, it's also sometimes been suspicious of reason. Those suspicions blossomed in the days of Galileo and Darwin. It may therefore be instructive to look at their scientific proposals then to review the church's response to them, to consider their ongoing influence even beyond the borders of science, and finally to suggest some rules of engagement for the current theology-science dialogue. Galileo basically seconded the heliocentric theory of Copernicus his notion of a sun of an earth-centered universe, where the sun rather than the earth is at the center of the, co- where the earth rather than the sun, or hmm, the sun rather than the earth is enter the center of the cosmos. The difference was that while Copernicus proposed it as a theory, Galileo saw it as a fact. The Roman Catholic response to Galileo, the reaction of the official Church to Galileo and his Copernicanism can be stated briefly. On March 5th, 1616, Pope Paul V acted through the Congregation of the Index, that is the Index of Forbidden Books, to condemn Copernicanism as false and completely contrary to divine scripture. Galileo was then informed by Cardinal Robert Bellarmine that he was not to hold, teach, or defend Copernicanism. Though free to discuss the theory hypothetically, he was not to present it as truth, since it had not yet been demonstrated by reason, and since it seemed contrary to scripture. Here, Bellarmine was following St. Augustine's principles of exegesis, which were also taught by Aquinas and endorsed by Galileo himself. When Galileo proceeded to argue for the truth of heliocentrism, he was brought to trial judged as vehemently suspected of heresy, self a rather odd charge, how do you vehemently suspect someone, and in any case he was forced to denounce his teachings. Aside from official church pronouncements, there was a wide variety of reactions to heliocentrism among theologians. We can look briefly at the Dominicans and the Jesuits. Go figure. In 1614, a Dominican friar, Tommaso Caccini, created quite a stir with a sermon he preached at Santa Maria Novella in Florence, in which he denounced heliocentrism as a heresy, condemned mathematics as the art of the devil, and called for the expulsion of mathematicians from all Christian countries. His words prompted another Dominican, Luigi Marafi, often identified as a preacher general, to apologize to Galileo, lamenting, as he said, that, I have to answer for all the idiocies that 30 or 40,000 brothers may and do actually commit. In general, the Dominicans tended to oppose Galileo while the Jesuits supported him. In 1610, for instance, Christopher Clavius, the chief astronomer at the Jesuit Roman College, wrote Galileo that his astronomers had confirmed some of Galileo's discoveries. However parsed, the Galileo affair cannot be viewed as a simple battle between science and religion. For one thing, all the participants themselves were Christians and all acknowledged the authority of Scripture. As William Shea points out, the affair involved the complex interplay of untoward political circumstances, personal ambitions, and wounded prides. The philosopher of science, Paul Feyerabend, argues that Galileo was not treated unfairly by the church. And he draws contemporary comparisons. He says, the church was not ready to change Just because somebody had produced some vague guesses, it wanted proof, scientific proof in scientific matters. Here it acted no differently from modern scientific institutions, universities and schools and even research institutes in various countries. They usually wait a long time before they incorporate new ideas into their curricula. He says, I merely want to reveal the contradiction in actions of those who praise Galileo and condemn the Church, but become as strict as the Church was at Galileo's time when turning to the work of their contemporaries. Whatever the other circumstances, the foundation of the Galileo affair was the Church's condemnation of Copernicanism as false and completely contrary to the divine scriptures. Only in 1714 was that Decision reversed, and then rather indirectly, when Pope Benedict XIV granted an imprimatur to the first edition of the complete works of Galileo, and then in 1741 removed all works teaching heliocentric theory from the index of forbidden books. Only in 1992, however, did the church acknowledge that it had made a mistake in its condemnation of heliocentrism. But again, the acknowledgement in a statement by Pope John Paul II was rather oblique. As the Pope put it, one might perhaps be surprised that I am returning to the Galileo case. Has not this case long been shelled and have not the errors committed been recognized? One wonders, when did that happen? He continues, that certainly is true. The error of the theologians of the time, when they maintained the centrality of the earth, was to think that our understanding of the physical world structure was in some way imposed by the literal sense of sacred scripture. We can look at the influence of Galileo's theory. It was enormous in science and beyond, especially through his scientific method. His fundamental intuition was that the best, or perhaps the only way to study the world, was quantitatively. Without mathematics, he says, one wanders about in a dark labyrinth. As Jerome Langford points out, as far as Galileo was concerned, whatever could not be caught in the mathematical abstraction, such as secondary Sense qualities, essences, and causes were either subjective or did not exist. In the aftermath of Galileo, things that were not quantifiable not only dropped out of the consideration of empirical science, they simply ceased to exist. Science became the arbiter of the real. As Thomas Joseph White notes, The modern sciences from the 17th century on increasingly presented themselves as the normative and certain mode of assuring true knowledge of reality. Science was the judge of reality, and it judged by the criterion of quantity. Eventually, its quantitative method became a kind of metaphysics. Whatever was not quantifiable was not real. Modes of causality that could not be quantified, such as formal and final causes, were simply abandoned. All qualitative aspects of the natural world were either translated into quantities, as when color was converted into frequencies of light, or relegated to the domain of the subjective experience. Of course, the subjective domain itself was eventually quantified in neuroscience, and consciousness itself became a kind of enigma. Meantime, the mathematical laws of science came to be understood as not only describing but determining the way the world acts. Since the laws were necessary, all that happened in the world was likewise necessary. Determinism reigned. Contingency was abolished. And human freedom also became an enigma, a quirky, subjective conceit somehow compatible with the deterministic world, so long as we remain ignorant of the real causes of our action. Galileo's Copernican astronomy displaced human beings from the center of the cosmos. Later astronomy relegated them to a truly insignificant suburb of the universe. But it was the mathematical account of the world that left them truly homeless, anomalies in a natural world that was wholly mathematical. The physicist Erwin Schrodinger explains this. He says, the scientific picture of the real world is ghastly silent about all and sundry that really matters to us. It cannot tell us a word about red and blue, bitter and sweet, physical pain and physical delight. It knows nothing of beautiful and ugly, or good or bad, God and eternity. And the reason he continues for this disconcerting situation is just this, that for the purpose of constructing the picture of the external world, we have used the greatly simplifying device of cutting our own personality out, removing it, Hence, it is gone, it is evaporated, it is ostensibly not needed. If humans were rendered homeless in the world of science, so was God. There seemed to be no place, literally no room, for his action in a world completely determined by the laws of science. God was simply irrelevant, at best a deist God, who like a good mechanic, contrived and assembled the world, and then quietly took his leave. Again, as Schrodinger says, science is reticent, too, when it is a question of God. Science is very usually branded as atheistic. After what we said, this is not astonishing— if its world picture does not even contain blue, yellow, bitter, sweet, beauty, delight, and sorrow, if personality is cut out of it by agreement, how should it contain the most sublime idea that presents itself to the human mind? Alexander Quare famously captured the change in thinking in the wake of Galileo and Newton in his book, From the closed world to the infinite universe. He says, This scientific and philosophical revolution can be described roughly as bringing forth the destruction of the conception of the world as a finite, closed, and hierarchically ordered whole, and its replacement by an indefinite and infinite universe. Which is bound together by the unit by the identity of its fundamental components and laws. This in turn, implies the discarding by scientific thought of all considerations based upon value concepts such as perfection, harmony, meaning and aim, and finally, the utter devalorization of being, the divorce of the world of value from the world of facts. One might ask, though, whether this is really a transition from a closed world to an infinite universe, or rather a shift from an open world, a world rich with color, contingency, and beauty, all pointing to an infinite creator, to a rather cramped cosmos for a single brand of stuff that we call matter gets pushed around inexorably by a single type of cause that we call force towards a mechanistic dead end, a universe that can point to nothing beyond itself. We move to Charles Darwin. Darwin begins his Origin of Species with a rather modest proposal. He says, In considering the origin of species, it is quite conceivable that a naturalist, might come to the conclusion that each species had not been independently created, but has descended from other species. Fair enough. Using the analogy of animal husbandry, he explains how a process of natural selection might result in the preservation of favorable traits and the eventual evolution of new species. This simple biological proposal, however, was fraught with implications beyond science and rapidly collected a good deal of ideological baggage. As Mario Artigas explains, the enthusiasm that evolution sparked was frequently mixed with attacks on religion. And in the name of evolution, an equally vigorous defense of agnosticism, atheism, materialism, and free thought. This is exemplified in an article written in 1871 by Thomas Henry Huxley, affectionately known as Darwin's bulldog. He writes, in addition to the truth of the doctrine of evolution, indeed one of its greatest merits in my eyes is the fact that it occupies a position of complete and irreconcilable antagonism to the vigorous and consistent enemy of the highest intellectual, moral, and social life of mankind, the Catholic Church. Huxley sent his article to Darwin, who raised no objection to these ideas. At least he wrote back with great enthusiasm. He says... Your letter has pleased me in many ways to a wonderful degree. I laughed until my stomach was contracted into a ball. What a wonderful man you are to grapple with these old metaphysical divinity books. As Scott Appleby summarizes, Darwinism in all of its forms loomed threateningly as one of the unambiguous products of modern thought The culmination of its irreligious tendencies. What was the Catholic response? The Church was relatively swift to condemn heliocentrism, but moved more slowly on the question of evolution. In 1860, a local provincial council of Cologne stated that evolutionistic teachings on human origins were completely contrary to Scripture and the faith. But the official church itself did not condemn the theory of evolution. Perhaps it came closest to this when it put a book supporting evolution by Raffaello Caverni on the index. In its deliberations on the book, the congregation of the index noted, it says, Until now the Holy See has rendered no decision on the system mentioned. Therefore, if Caverni's work is condemned, as it should be, Darwinism would be indirectly condemned. Surely there would be cries against this decision. The example of Galileo will be held up. It will be said that this holy congregation is not competent to emit judgments on physiological and ontological doctrines or theories of change. But we should not focus on this probable clamor With his system, Darwin destroys the bases of Revelation and openly teaches pantheism and abject materialism. Thus, an indirect condemnation of Darwin is not only useful, but even necessary, together with that of Caverni, his defender and propagator among the Italian youth. Though the book was placed on the index, the reasons for this action were never published, And so it was not seen as a condemnation of Darwinism itself. Mariano Antigas argues that the Vatican authorities were aware of the fact that no condemnation of evolution had been issued, and apparently they were not anxious to provide one. Though the Church, as such, did not condemn Darwinism, a number of individual theologians did. In 1876, for instance, the Jesuit Father Frederick P. Goresce of St. Louis University called those who supported Darwin conspirators against revealed religion, heretics who worshiped matter as their guard. The Jesuit periodical La Civita Cattolica was in the forefront of the attack on Darwinism. Since Thomas Aquinas was sometimes used in arguments against Darwinism, Catholic theologians who favored evolution sometimes tried to distance themselves from Aquinas. So Bishop John Lancaster Spaulding of Peoria told an audience at the laying of the cornerstone of the Catholic University of America in 1888, since it is our privilege to live at a time when knowledge is increasingly more rapid, we, if we hope to stand at the forefront of the ranks of those who know, we must keep pace with the onward movement of the mind. To turn away from this outburst of splendor and power, to look back to pagan civilization or Christian barbarism, is to love darkness more than light. Aristotle is a great mind, but his learning is crude, and his ideas of nature are frequently grotesque. St. Thomas is a powerful intellect, but his point of view, in all that concerns natural knowledge, has long since vanished from sight. Other theologians, however, employed Aquinas in their arguments for evolution. The English scientist and convert to Catholicism, St. George Mivart, a friend of John Henry Newman and also, at least initially, of Charles Darwin, argued that evolution was in accord with Aquinas' philosophy. While insisting that the human soul must be created directly by God, he argued that new animal species and the human body itself might be produced by evolution. Though his theological opinions on other matters eventually led to something like an excommunication, the Church never condemned his views on evolution. The French Dominican, Marie Dalmas Leroy, used Aquinas in his arguments for evolution. He criticized both those who insisted that the human body or human being, body and soul, must be directly created by God, and he criticized those who allowed that the human body might be a product of evolution, into which God would then breathe a human soul. He saw that the human body as such cannot be the product of evolution, since a body is not human unless it has a human soul, a human substantial form. He argued instead that primary matter might be disposed through natural causes to be proportionate to the human soul, at which point the soul of the first human would be created and so actualize that matter, just as souls are now created when primary matter is properly disposed in the process of human generation. He wrote, It is only after the infusion of the soul and because of the infusion itself that man is constituted a living being. Before being infused, there was nothing human, not even the body, inasmuch as human flesh cannot exist without the soul, which is its substantial form. Thus, the Bible interpreted by theology tells us that man's body cannot be derived from lower nature. Forced by the congregation of the Index to publish a retraction of his work, Leroy stood by and looked forward to the eventual vindication of his theory. He wrote, Have I succeeded in making the theory of evolution less suspect? I hope so, but I have few illusions. Although it may be shown that certain objections are insubstantial, there will always be some who persist in repeating them. I expect, therefore, that I will still hear it repeated, that evolution, even in the limited form, is in opposition to the Bible and the teachings of the Church, that it is not supported by any scientific fact. And that to seek to explain, in so far as possible, the formation of the world without miracles is to propose creation without God. For this, there is only one remedy time. It is too much to expect that the problem could be discussed freely at this time. Each generation needs to become accustomed to new ideas before being able to do them justice. This is the case of the system of limited evolution. I expect, nevertheless, that it will survive the test, and who can say if perhaps some day it will strike us as strange that it could have encountered such antipathy. As a final example of the Catholic response to evolutionism, we might consider John Augustine's psalm. A holy cross priest, scientist, and one of the first professors at Notre Dame University. He argues that the science of evolution can be distinguished from non-scientific ideological interpretations such as materialism and agnosticism. He describes evolution as an ancient doctrine supported even by Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas. He writes, Theistic evolution, in the sense in which it is advocated by St. Augustine and St. Thomas, excludes also divine interference or constant unnecessary interventions on the part of the deity. Both these illustrious doctors declare explicitly that in the institution of nature, we do not look for miracles, but for the laws of nature." The Congregation of the Index decided to condemn his book, but its decision was never published. It's evident that the Church proceeded quite differently on evolution than it had on heliocentrism. Many see the shadow of Galileo in the Church's newfound prudence. We've seen that the Congregation of the Index had Galileo explicitly in mind in its deliberation on Caverni's book, Some believe that what stopped the publication of the decree of condemnation of his book was the fear that it could be considered as a condemnation of evolution, and his case might be compared to that of Galileo. As Harry Paul notes, the Galileo case was constantly put forward by writers as proof of a need for caution in such matters. Again, the Dominican Marie-Domas Leroy alludes to Galileo in another of his prophetic statements. He says, I believe that the same will happen with evolutionism as happened with Galileo's theory. It might frighten the Orthodox at first, but when feelings have calmed down, the truth will emerge, once shorn of all exaggeration on both sides. It may then not seem such a bad thing that a man of the Church should have spoken well of it in advance. Let us render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, so that we may then invite Caesar in turn to render unto God the things that are God's. The reception of evolutionism by the Church involved a gradual distilling of science and evolution from its ideological baggage. A series of international scientific Catholic conferences between 1888 and 1900 aided the work of the Church in this. Still, as R. Scott Appleby notes, the clergy was timid after 1910 in the wake of the Vatican's condemnation of modernism. By that date, the response to evolutionary theory had become a litmus test of orthodoxy. The tide was gradually changing, however, and Peter Bowler points out that by the 1920s, a significant body of opinion began to build up among Roman Catholics in favor of the position that Mivart had defined in response to Darwinism. So what to do at that point? Should the pope intervene with a decision? In 1930, G.K. Chesterton was amused by such a suggestion. Hearing that a certain Bishop Barnes had asked the pope for an infallible pronouncement on the truth of evolution, Chesterton remarked, he apparently imagines that the possession of papal infallibility is a sort of friendly joke or a popular convenience to be lent around to anybody, like a corkscrew or a tin opener, whenever anybody feels a momentary movement of curiosity about some subject. He continues, the Pope does not pronounce on the question of evolution for the simple reason that the question is not sufficiently important. The Pope is not there to pronounce upon how the camel got his hump, or how the elephant got his trunk, it is not likely that the supreme guardian of faith and morals will be very much excited about such things. Well, apparently Chesterton did not have his finger on the pulse of the papacy. Since 1950, a number of popes have made pronouncements on evolution, though none have claimed to speak infallibly. The first was Pius XII with his encyclical Humani Generis. While noting that the theory of evolution has not been fully proved, the Pope said that the Church does not forbid research on the doctrine of evolution regarding whether the human body might come from pre-existent living matter. He insisted, however, that souls are immediately created by God. He concluded that arguments favorable and unfavorable to evolution should be weighed and judged with necessary seriousness, moderation, and measure. In 1996, Pope John Paul II was considerably more open towards evolution. After noting that Pius XII had called evolution an unproven hypothesis, he remarked, Today, almost half a century after the publication of the encyclical, new knowledge has led us to realize that the theory of evolution is more than an hypothesis. He affirmed Pius's teaching, however, that even if the human body takes its origin from pre-existent living matter, the spiritual soul is immediately created by God. He also noted that In order to answer the questions raised by evolution, we must go beyond empirical science to philosophy and theology. In 2007, Pope Benedict XVI expressed his agreement with John Paul II that evolution raises questions that science cannot answer. But he retreated from John Paul's endorsement of evolution. He remarks, The theory of evolution cannot be proved experimentally quite simply because we cannot bring 10,000 generations into the laboratory. How high is the probability now? This is important, especially if we want to interpret correctly the remark of Pope John Paul II, who said, the theory of evolution is more than a hypothesis when the Pope said that he had his reasons for saying it. But at the same time, it is true that the theory of evolution is still not a complete scientifically verified theory. Well, in 2014, Pope Francis weighed in with some comments at a meeting of the Pontifical Academy of the Sciences. He said, When we read about the account of creation in Genesis, we risk imagining that God was a magician, complete with a powerful magic wand. But that was not so. He created beings and he left them, then, to develop according to the internal laws with which he had endowed each one, that they might develop and reach their fullness. He gave autonomy to the beings of the universe at the same time in which he assured them of his continual presence. And thus, creation has been progressing for centuries and centuries, millennia and millennia, until becoming as we know it today, precisely because God is not a demiurge or a magician, but the creator who gives life to all things. The beginning of the world was not a work of chaos, but derives directly from a supreme principle who creates out of love. The Big Bang theory, which is proposed today as the origin of the world, does not contradict the intervention of a divine creator, but depends on it. Evolution in nature does not conflict with the notion of creation, because evolution presupposes the creation of beings who evolve. So We can look at the influence of Darwin's theory Well, it's easy to speak of separating evolutionary science from ideology. The surgery itself is not so simple. Accretions began with Darwin himself. He included eugenics theories and other social applications in the second edition of his book, The Descent of Man, where he wrote that a most important obstacle in civilized countries To an increase in the number of men of superior class is the tendency of societies very poor and reckless, who are often degraded by vice, to increase faster than the provident and generally virtuous members. Beyond social theory, Darwin makes a number of philosophical assumptions involving formal and final causality. He sees the notion of species as little more than a name. That is, he says, arbitrarily applied. Species is only a word that humans impose on nature as a handy means of classification. It is not an intrinsic aspect of nature itself. But if there are no species or naturally occurring kinds of life, then there is no need for a formal cause or soul to account for each particular type. Darwin also questioned final causality. The process he describes as culminating in the production of human beings happened through chance and natural selection without plan or purpose. He used uses teleological language to explain that individual traits evolved for the good of the possessor but maintains that any larger use of purpose would be absolutely fatal to my theory. As Hans Jonas notes, indeed, it was the Darwinian theory of evolution, with its combination of chance variation and natural selection, which completed the extrusion of teleology from nature, having become redundant even in the story of life, Purpose retired wholly into subjectivity. A vision of a world without stability or purpose quickly emerged from Darwin's theory, and those already committed to materialism were quick to embrace it, as Harry Paul notes. Darwinism was immediately pressed into service as providing scientific proof of the validity of materialistic principles. Rather than any new philosophical premise, the real danger of Darwinist materialist symbiosis was that now man could be cataloged scientifically according to the tenets of materialism. Man had lost the place of honor assigned to him in the creation and recorded in biblical anthropology. The logical conclusion was brutally put by Heckel, belief in the immortality of the soul and belief in God can be relegated to the rubbish heap of outworn articles of the Christian faith. Well, we can look at some rules for engagement now in the contemporary discussion. Bleak as the worldview is that emerged in the wake of the science of Galileo and Newton we should remember that it's not the product of science as such, but of the gratuitous assumptions that grew up alongside that science. The result was scientism, an ideology pretending to be founded on science, but without basis in either science or philosophy. Those engaged in the theology-science dialogue must be watchful of it. To foster such vigilance, I'll propose a few simple rules of engagement. These are put forward in the spirit of the movie Pirates of the Caribbean. If you remember, the pirates lived by a code that was, as they said, more what you'd call guidelines than actual rules. So, with that caveat, I propose three rules. Rule number one don't panic. Rule number two, remember the limits of science. And number three, remember the limits of language. The first rule, as you probably recognize, is borrowed from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The church seemed to forget this rule in its rejection of heliocentrism, but kept it better in mind in dealing with evolution. Of course, the admonition, don't panic, is rather empty if we don't have a good reason to keep calm when faced with the latest findings of science. As it happens, though, we have a great reason, nothing less than the unity of truth. Since truth cannot contradict truth, the truths of reason cannot contradict those of faith. The trick, of course is to know when human reason has really put its finger on the truth and when theology has rightly understood God's word. That task is not easy, especially when faced with the explosion of contemporary scientific learning and all of our current flurries of theologies. These complexities are made more manageable, however, if we look to certain limits. The bold assertion of modern Newtonian science, that it comprised all truth and could explain all of reality, has been tempered by the discoveries of contemporary science. Oh, by the way, I consider these uh, developments in my uh, book, Unlocking Divine Action. So we pause for a moment here of shameless commerce. <laughs> Uh, I also look at them in uh, philosophical anthropology, another book, and uh, philosophy of nature. First book is rather expensive; these others are pretty cheap. So, also, science can now trace the history of our universe back to the Big Bang. It must also acknowledge that the very laws it uses to do this themselves break down as it approaches the initial event. And though science can describe and statistically predict the behavior of matter at the quantum level, it finds no common agreement on the nature of the reality to which those statistics apply. As John Henley Brook explains, the recognition that physicists dealt with models of an elusive reality and that no one model could give an exhaustive account of subatomic phenomena allowed a little humility to enter the dialogues between scientists and theologians. In a physicist's conception of nature in 1958, Heisenberg spoke of a modesty that scientists had largely lost during the 19th century, but which modern physics was helping to restore. As science realizes its limits and discovers questions it cannot answer, the way is open to retrieve and develop a philosophy of nature. In case you're wondering where to retrieve that. Um, Retrieve a philosophy of nature that does not compete with, but complements empirical science. The inherent uncertainty of quantum mechanics has marked the end of an entirely mechanistic account of nature, and notions such as potentiality, form, purpose, have begun to reappear in many branches of science. As James Weishyeple explains, it becomes clear that there is no radical opposition between modern science and a philosophy of nature, such as devised by Aristotle and St. Thomas. Such a natural philosophy is not only valid, but even necessary for the philosophical understanding of nature itself. That is to say, there are realities in nature that are not accounted for by physical mathematical abstraction, realities such as motion, time, causality, chance, substance, and change itself. If the study of nature itself has led contemporary scientists to recognize the limits of their discipline, all the more should the study of divine revelation remind theologians of the limits of theirs, the limits of what we can know and say about God, the limits of language. Theology and science each has its own language, and both languages employ analogy whether in the models that science uses to describe what the world is like, or in the arguments that theology employs, to show how the things of this world that we barely know are somehow like and can therefore illuminate the things of God that we don't know at all. It's therefore wise for each discipline to recognize the limits of its language and be cautious in interpreting the language of the other. When the scientists speak of the beginning of the universe at the Big Bang, for instance, the theologian should not immediately identify this term with the beginning of the world that we call creation. Again, when scientists fails for the moment to find a complete natural explanation for some phenomenon, such as the fine-tuning of the early universe or the origin of the bacterial flagellum, the theologian should not be overly hasty in suggesting a divine cause. One danger of such haste is that the proposed divine cause may easily be mistaken for just another natural cause of the kind that science studies. Another danger is that the proposed divine cause may soon have to be abandoned when science does eventually find a natural cause for the phenomenon. Here we come face to face with the sad history of what we call the god of the gaps, who, however glad it may be to have some temporary employment, soon finds itself jobless once again before the advance of science. If theologians must be circumspect in citing the sayings of scientists, scientists should also be prudent in parsing the predications of theologians. When the theologian names divine providence as the cause of evolution, for instance, The biologist should not immediately conclude that the causality of natural selection has been dismissed. The primary causality of God, affirmed by the theologian, does not exclude the secondary causality of creatures studied by the scientist, provided that the theologian does not jump to the primary cause too quickly. Aquinas offers a helpful caution here. He says... If a person answers someone who asks why wood is heated with the statement, because God willed it, he is answering appropriately, provided he intends to take the question back to the first cause, but not appropriately if he means to exclude all other causes. For a productive dialogue between theology and science, each discipline must be aware of what it knows and of what it does not, of when to speak and when to be silent. Steeped in such wisdom, both theologians and scientists may hope to live in peace and avoid the way that leads to war, that weary way so well described by G.K. Chesterton with whose words we might conclude this talk. He says, unfortunately, 19th century scientists were just as ready to jump to the conclusion that any guess about nature was an obvious fact, as were 17th century sectarians to jump to the conclusion that any guess about scripture was its obvious explanation. Thus, private theories about what the Bible ought to mean and premature theories about what the world ought to mean, have met in loud and widely advertised controversy. And this clumsy collision of two very impatient forms of ignorance was known as the quarrel of science and religion faith and reason podcasts new media for the new evangelization from franciscan university of steubenville find more at faithandreason.com